Welcome to the Life as an Observer podcast. My name is Ryan Bean. I am your host in self-observation. This podcast is an exploration of physical and non-physical self through discussion around yoga, meditation, self-improvement, self-realization, and practices that elevate the mind-body-soul connection. Let's start observing. This episode of Life as an Observer is made possible by patron support. If you'd like to support this program, you can visit patron.podbean.com backslash life as an observer to learn more. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to Life as an Observer. I'm really happy to be here today and kind of just share some other in, uh, interesting aspects of yoga. So today we're talking about is yoga a religion? And maybe you've already kind of come up with your own answer in your mind or you've a quick response that you would say if someone were actually to ask you that. Um, we're going to kind of dive a little bit deeper into, into that today. Today's um, podcast is, is kind of inspired by a, a, a talk that I heard from Ram Das, and it's also on the contrary in response to a, a, a couple Twitter comments that involve this particular topic. So we're going to kind of jump into that. But before we do, just want to thank for thank you to all that are giving their reviews um, on Apple Podcasts or if you're doing them on other services. Um, it's really nice to hear your feedback and the things that you're liking, the things that you're not. This is kind of a me exploring into the things that are interesting to me. But I also want to be able to serve you as an audience. So it's really nice to have your feedback and even your topic ideas, things that you're interested in and books that you're interested in reading and talking about. I'm happy to always go into those. Um, as a new podcast, sometimes it's hard to get guests. You know, it's hard to get those those big name guests that um, we would like to have. So your reviews really help in kind of pushing us up the chart and allowing us to be able to book those guests. Um, you know, so I've had a lot of solo shows recently and uh, hopefully to make that change to having more guests in the very near future. Um, also, those who are um, on on the uh, patron page, I appreciate you. Very grateful for that. This podcast at the time right now is ad-free um, unless there becomes a product that I feel like I want to support or a company that I want to support. But otherwise, it's ad-free. I'm just giving this to you kind of as a gift, and it is done through patron support. So you kind of heard... Um, the intro there about going to Podbean and checking out the patron information. Uh, we have um, almost as much content there as we do on the on the distribution pages for the podcast. So extra content, breath work, um, uh, gifts, uh, live classes for the patrons, and it starts as low as two dollars a month. So lots of options there. There's some twenty and fifty dollar options, and they all kind of take me to uh, to the goals. So the goal is really to be able to explore more in my own personal education in spirituality and so that I can relay that to you in the podcast and through workshops and retreats and so forth. And I have another goal that has to do around van life and retreating and getting into the vans with a bunch of you um, and, and doing that full time. So really need the support to be able to make that happen. If you'd like to, just take a look over at the, um, the link in the description for the, the podcast. Uh, patron page and give it a consideration if that's something that you would like to support. Now I have a couple of retreats coming up, uh, one in November in Florida that you may be interested in looking at too. It is an art 
and meditation yoga retreat. And I have another one in Southern Utah in December. I will put, uh, that is for ketamine assisted therapy with Scott Allen. Um, he was on a previous episode of the podcast. Um, I'll have all those notes in the, uh, the, the dates in the, in the show notes. So thanks for joining today. Let's jump right in to it. So <laughs> is yoga a religion? Well, I'm going to start off with this tweet and, and then we'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into it. Now, I was going to keep the name of the, the, the Twitter user uh, quiet, but honestly, I think that I'm going to divulge that because I, I would actually like to have a talk with, with Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh is a podcast host also, um, and he is a blogger. I think on his Twitter page it says he is a theocratic fascist, philanthropist, aspiring cult leader, and proud Virginia resident. Well, way to go, Matt. Um, I would love to chat with you about some of your your comments around yoga um, because um, I want to kind of set it straight. So his comment, now this is a couple of years old, but he put one comment that said, it's kind of amazing to see all the Christians who think nothing of going to yoga class. There are many excellent ways to get into shape that do not involve participating in Hindu worship. Interesting. He went on to say uh, in, a fo- in another tweet, it uh, looks like the same day, the best comparison for yoga would be the Ouija board. Yes, you can play it just for fun without any ill intent, but still you're participating in something that was designed to conjure spirits. Better just play Monopoly or something. Why mess around with it? Now, I don't know if this shook you the way that it did me. Um, I'm actually really grateful that he put this stuff out there because, you know, it's an interesting topic and it's actually um, kind of led me to thinking more about it. So is yoga a religion? Well, my first answer is no. <laughs> yoga definitely is not a religion. Um, it is connected to some aspects of Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism, but not in the way that we see it, especially in the West. It is yoga's roots are in contemplation and reflection and even uh, Patanjali, who wrote, if we want to call it the name of the Bible for yoga, says that yoga is the calming of the whirlwind of the mind. That's all he says that yoga is. And when we go into that a little bit deeper, yoga, that word itself means to yoke or to union or to find unity. And normally that means the body, mind, and spirit. And that's kind of the way that it's looked at, at least through um, teachers' trainings and, and the way that it's been portrayed to me, is that there's a union of this body-mind-soul connection, which really is spirituality over religion. Uh, not, not that one is better than another, but it is a, a, a way of contemplation and going into spirituality. Now, I want to kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, the, the yoga that we, that we do in the West typically is hatha-based, hatha or hatha, which means forceful. Um, it is a, as a physical practice, and it has lots of other um, specialty or more refined practices, Ashtanga, and it has yin yoga and restorative yoga, power yoga, vinyasa yoga, uh, buddhakan yoga, one that I really like. There's kundalini yoga. There's all different aspects of this union that targets specific audiences. Now, why is it spirituality and not a religion? Well, there's not a head of the religion. There's not a, a specific book or um, 
scripture that, that is referred to. Yes, the Yoga Sutras are kind of guidelines, but I would kind of look at the, the Yoga Sutras as more like the Ten Commandments, if we're going to put it in religious context, rather than the Bible. It's just really, like, especially the yamas, there, there's the eight limb. they're not the yamas, the, the sutras, there's the eight limbs of yoga. And each one of them kind of guide us into ways of living a better life, whether it be the yamas, which talks about how we interact with others, uh, the niyamas, how we observe our actions, you know, and goes further into asana, which is what we're familiar with, posture, breathwork, pranayama, pratyahara, withdrawing of the senses, and then it starts to go really inward with dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. All are really, uh, the first four limbs are really to have us, how we interact with the world around us. And then the last four are really how we interact with the world within us. It doesn't have anything to do with religion. It has to do with how we are showing up for ourselves. Now, that is hatha-based yoga. And I saw something, um, I'm kind of paraphrasing this, but yoga is not, even though it has some roots in Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism, that's really just because of where it came from. And those who were practicing at the time were doing more of a bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion. Now, that particular practice is really heavily tied to religion in some ways, even when Yogananda, when he came to the United States, um, he wanted to make sure that it was not um, identified as a religion. He even called it the science of self-reflection. That was what Yogananda called it. He didn't want to call it any kind of religion or practice. He said it is the science of self-realization. And that's through bhakti yoga. And there's lots of different kinds of yoga that's out there from our hatha, which we talked about, to uh, nada yoga, music, connecting through music. There is karma yoga and kriya, and there is um, tantra yoga, and there is many, many other types. Even Ram Das talks a little bit about the yoga of relationships, bringing this union to a relationship or to, um, to your relationship. There's lots of other ways that we can bring union into our lives, that have nothing to do with religion. They're just simply, it's just a term that we're using. I like to use the, uh, the analogy that yoga is um, a Hindu practice the same way that gravity is Christian. Now think about that for a second. Yoga is a Hindu practice the same way that gravity is a Christian practice. And I say that because Sir Isaac Newton was a Christian. He's the one who really kind of came up and theorized about gravity, um, did all the scientific research, and really is credited for um, identifying gravity. Now, Hindus maybe identified yoga, but it is not certainly a Hindu practice. It is a practice for all. Matter of fact, if you talk to many, they would actually say that the way that yoga is done in the West has nothing to do with the spiritual practices of the East that is actually quite far removed. And we need to maybe pull back on that a little bit of how we say it is religious. I've seen it actually in a lot of um, uh, blogs and even online and memes and different, where we, we talk about yoga being uh, a religion. And I think that there's a lot of fear-based reaction there. Um, maybe a lot of it is from people who don't actually go to yoga. 
Um, isn't that always the case though, right? Where we judge that, that we don't know and that, that we're scared of and that we're fearful of, um, and moving away from what truth is. I talk a lot about it on my social media page about perspective. And I posted a a meme the other day and it showed two people. Um, one, you could see her thoughts. Um, and the, the other guy, you could see his thoughts too. And they were both looking at a bee right in between them. There was a bee and, the lady, she thought, she saw and she was smiling and she saw honey in her thoughts. And she's like, oh, that's really wonderful. The other guy, he saw death. He saw this big skull and crossbones. And I just put that our perspective causes a great deal of stress and suffering, our perspective and how we look at it. And many of which have not been experienced. So we have to kind of think about that too. We're judging something that we have not even experienced. I hear it all the time. I would go to yoga if I was just flexible or... I could use some spirituality spirituality in my life, but I'm not really all that religious. And and I, I hate to say it, but you don't have to be. Just start. This is a matter of willpower and saying, I want to be a better human. And I might use yoga as kind of that tool. So I can tell you a little bit about my personal spirituality journey. Now, I started out in a very religious Christian home that um, was at church every, every Sunday, um, very practiced, uh, all the stuff during the week, lived in a religious community in Utah, and was very much involved with their, uh, with their, their respective churches, and uh, considering what they were considering as Christian um, Uh, services. So that's kind of what I grew up with. But for me, as I became to get a little older, and as I learned a little bit about more about myself, I began to to consider the spiritual meanings. And I started to cultivate an awareness of kind of some of that symbolism that shows up in Christianity. And I found that most of my personal practice um, well, it was really small. Let's just be honest. I w- it was actually quite small. Uh, my practice was just kind of reluctantly going to church on Sundays and um, not finding a whole lot of fulfillment with it. And that is because I, in my time, uh, I kind of felt like I had received the script. And think about that for a second. What is the script of your religion or script of any religion just in general that you kind of know what the answers are supposed to be because you've been told that you just find it in the good book, right? You just find it in that book. It's going to be in that chapter and that's your answer. And you're not really supposed to debate it. You're not supposed to go into like a deep perspective about it. You're not supposed to really um, contemplate it. Really just go in with faith. So we go in with faith because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to believe it and feel it. And we pray and and we hope to receive some of the, the, the spiritual benefits from that. And some of them are quite good. Some of them are actually really amazing, the ways that we can connect teaching kids about the Ten Commandments and teaching um, even adults to utilize a force greater than themselves to deal with depression, anxiety, um, addiction. There's, there's just so much that can be added and so much greatness that comes from the teachings of Christ. But there are a lot of great teachers out there, right? 
from from Abraham to Muhammad to Moses to the Buddha to many many Hindu teachers um, that I that I love to listen to the different swamis. Um, some of their their lives have been documented, and of course I bring up Ram Das a lot, who was a um, who was a uh, raised in Judaism and lived in Hinduism, but taught Christianity and Buddhism. And it's because there are good aspects to all, to all, really. And there's also, I guess, some bad aspects to all, right? But what I had received was the script. And what it did is it took me away from exploring what else is out there. We're told just to let go and lean into Christ or let go and lean into God. And it kind of takes away this contemplative aspect to religion. So moving away from that, I found that that was not religion anymore because I was no longer spiritual, even though I was doing the practices, but it was not contemplative. And maybe that was my own, to my own depriment. Maybe that was just my own way. But I find I hear this story echoed over and over that as we move into the teachings and just kind of do what we're told, lean in by faith, we lose an aspect that is our own personal exploration of spirituality. Yoga brought that back for me. Not using a religion, but just utilizing spirituality in general. Just going deeper into what my spirit needs and that union of my physical body into the union of my non-physical body. Now, there are many poses that could take on spiritual meanings. There's many mantras and there's, you know, mantras are, are chants normally. Yogananda was really, um, Paramahansa Yogananda was really big on chanting um, out loud. That was part of his practice, that science of self-realization. And I, from what I gather from his uh, book and from his teachings is that that was a way to turn off the the chatter that's all around us and just moving into this central powerful statement that takes us deeper and into a place of that connection to source to all that is to all that could be and we use that mantra to chant loudly and to move away from our thinking mind and into this kind of pattern where we can begin to feel and explore how we feel not just praying to this imaginary person that we hope is listening, but really beginning to feel it within ourself and maybe letting that radiate out into the universe. So there's lots of different poses, like I said, that help us improve our flexibility and strength. And we use those in Hatha-based yoga practices. We sometimes use props. Um, we use them for our physical benefits. Um, and we, we bring that awareness into our bodies through breath. Almost every yoga pose can have a symbolic side of the pose, even how they're named, um, kind of take us into a symbol, symbolized practice. But, and maybe there is even a spiritual aspect. And so this is where we tend to get lost in this and calling yoga religion because there is a spiritual aspect. Now, when you, in the West, you've gone to practices that probably don't have chanting, but they may start with an om, that primordial sound of creation. 
And you may find that be offensive, almost as though we're, we're talking to, you know, a prayer. It is just simply the sound of creation. It's the vibration that is releasing nitric oxide in our nose, that little humming at the end. Um, it is a way to take us within ourselves and just feel vibration. Also, many yoga classes end in the word namaste. Um, typically, that word namaste is meant um, saying I, I recognize a divine light within me and within you. We meet in that same place and in that place we're one. And that's kind of what it means. It doesn't mean I'm honoring anything other than myself and I'm honoring you. And I like to take it a step further. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this. I don't remember the actual quote, but uh, where namaste does mean that, but it also means that I see the shadow, the dark, the not just the light, but that we've all been on these journeys and that sometimes humanity is messy and sometimes it's horrible and sometimes it's hard. But I recognize that in myself and I recognize that in you. And as we meet in this place to practice our poses, our spirituality that are completely personal, but in a public place, I honor your journey, which is not always easy. That is light and that is darkness. And that's where we meet in the namaste. And you may find that that doesn't resonate with you, but that's how I look at namaste is just saying, hey, I appreciate you. Thanks for showing up today, you know. So some of the poses that that can be taken into a spiritual aspect. And I'm going to just kind of read you a few of my favorites, um, just some notes that I took around them. And if you, you could really do this in any pose if you wanted to. You could take that spiritual aspect and tie it to it. For your own personal practice, this has nothing to do with going to a church, has nothing to do with going to a studio, this has nothing to do with religion. This has to do with going inward and exploring your non-physical self, that place of you that emits energy, um, which is through glucose and oxygen, um, metabolizing, and it's changing it into this thing called ATP. And so you have this energy that radiates based upon how you're feeling, right? So if we're excited or calm, we start to create this energy. And um, you can tie into that. You can also go into the heart coherence, the space where your heart lives and the energy and the knowledge that's behind your heart and the knowledge that's behind the organs, any of the organs. We can also move into the chakras. If that's tying you too close to, to religion, you can move away from that. But really, they're just energy centers that happen to have glands that, that are connected to our hypothalamus. The hypothalamus regulates the endocrine uh, secretions and the different chemicals. And so really you can tie into those areas, drawing that attention there because that's where energy is going to flow. So we do that. Um, we do that all the time. We do that all the time in different ways where we begin to tune into our bodies. This just happens to be us tuning into chakras. So the mountain pose. This is happens to be my favorite pose. It's sometimes called Tadasana. But, uh, well, one of my favorite poses, but we'll just call this one of my favorite poses. Mountain pose is the foundation for really all standing poses. You can stand there and uh, explore a couple different varieties, but the pose involves standing in a, in a grounded and stable position. It's uh, just like the mountain. You want it to feel like it's immovable, really strong and powerful. The symbolism of this or the spiritual symbolism of this pose is... Um, kind of layered. Uh, some people believe the mountain represents the aspirations that are within all of us. Um, this 
feeling to transcend ourselves to reach a place of enlightenment. This, uh, others believe that it's rising above conflict and challenges, and we reach for a place of unity, represented by the peak of the pose or the peak of the mountain. Alternatively, um, you can envision your potential and the endless possibilities in life. Imagine yourself standing at the top of a mountain while in Tadasana. What does that feel like? Just standing there, powerful, strong. I usually call this pose the come at me bro pose. Like I just feel grounded and tall and powerful. Come at me, bro. And that is my spirituality right there. It's just saying, I got this in a time where I may be feeling not as confident or maybe a little bit weak. I can switch that and come into the come at me, bro, in this Tadasana pose or this mountain pose. And just shifting that. Another pose that I like to think is has some a little bit of spiritual influence is Vakrasana, which is known as the tree pose. So tree pose is about finding and maintaining balance. Now, I talked about this in my episode with uh, Jason Nemar about that balance is a dynamic. So it's not really meant to be a static pose. It's really meant to move without the need for the rigidity, though. Um, the lower body stays pretty firm um, in r- this rooted space, in the tr- like the trunk of a tree. But your upper body has the freedom to to move, um, to be flexible and change. In tree pose, you stabilize your lower body first by raising your arms, and and then you draw your heart to the sky. Um, allowing flexibility means that you can dance with the wind while remaining rooted to the earth. So you just lift up one leg, and there's a couple varieties of binds. And changes in it. You can put your foot in a lot of different places along your leg. Um, but just sort of bending one knee, bringing the bottom of the foot to the, the calf muscle or the inner thigh. There's also a bind that's near the hip. But really thinking about this is, hey, I am stable and grounded, but I have some fluidity to me. I have the ability to, to sort of sway and move if need be. This just means that I'm flexible, not in the way of like the splits flexible, but that I'm willing to change and I'm not rooted in one idea. Another uh, pose that I that I think is, um, I really like it. It's actually, it's called Garuda. And there's a mudra. I actually just got done talking about this in yoga teacher training. But Garuda or the ego pose. Um, ego pose is how it's translated. But Garuda was really this huge, like, mythical bird. Massive. And um, in Hindu culture, Garuda is the vehicle of um, uh, Vishnu who was believed to be the preserver and protector of creation. So according to Hinduism, Vishnu um, sustains the universe by being fully present. And he, you know, rode this giant bird in. Now you can take out that aspect of it and just saying that this is me moving a little deeper into this balance. You can bring a meditative focus into your practice by embracing this ancient symbolism. But as you settle into this ego pose, Commit just to being present. We're winding the arms up. We're winding the legs up. This, po- this pose requires a lot of focus, patience, and there's a lot that you can learn from this pose. Sometimes uh, I'll do it standing on a block just to challenge myself. Or even on floors that are kind of squishy, that are not wood floors, um, this can be even more of a challenge. Um, two more poses. So the fourth pose is Padmasana, which is the lotus pose. So the lotus has kind of always been a part of yoga in a way. There's even some Buddhism references. and But it's always been this symbol of purity and faith. So it has a fitting name. Um, the pose that is commonly used for meditation and breath work for pranayama. 
Uh, while in lotus pose, you can purify and energize the body by breathing. Uh, breathing slowly and deeply is a wonderful way to release those tensions. I talk about that a lot in my, uh, my courses and uh, here on the podcast. But cleansing the cells and calming the mind. Just like the lotus, we kind of are, are in a place. I think it was a Buddha that said, no, no, no uh, mud, no lotus, right? So we're, we're kind of in these places that are pretty messy. Places that are kind of sticky. We kind of feel like we can't move, that we feel that we're stuck. And that's what we feel like when, when you get into the mud. But there is the potential of something beautiful growing from that, just like the lotus. No mud, no lotus. So as we, do, we practice Padmasana, we can make it very contemplative about things that are, that are sprouting or that are moving or growing or flowering from this place that could, from an outside of you, look quite messy. The final pose that I would like to say that would be a, a nice one for spiritual contemplation for self would be child's pose, sometimes called balasana or balashan. Um, it's kind of sometimes regarded as sort of an easy pose or a resting pose. Um, but there is some spiritual elements. I use it kind of to counter when I'm doing heart openings to kind of go back inward. Um, the positioning of the pose is that you're kneeling and your arms are usually stretched out in front of you. You rest your forehead down. And this kind of symbolizes this surrender, right, and, and into the pose. You can let go of all these external demands and sink into this childlike state of restfulness. I don't know if you guys do much time watching kids and how they can just fall asleep anywhere. But sometimes when we feel overwhelmed, um, and, you know, we just get tired quicker. We're, we're so active. We're so active in our nerves and we're so active in our emotions. And there comes a time where we just need to go inward and surrender to be able to rest. I felt that the other day as I was kind of overexerting myself. I did a lot of traveling and uh, just driving and trying to experience a lot of things all in one day. And I just needed to surrender. I wanted to, to keep my routine up, but I really needed like 12 hours of sleep. <laughs> so just to surrender... Um, into a pose felt very liberating and it felt like I was connected to what my my soul and my body needed. They needed to go inward, not think anymore, not try to try to create, but to really surrender and receive. Child's pose um, can be done in a few different ways. It can be done in a few different, you know, I like to do sometimes put a twist into it or maybe you bring the arms behind you just as a way to, to kind of let it all go, maybe bringing awareness to your, your thoughts and then eventually bring awareness to your breath because you can hear it really nice with your face next to the mat. And then beginning to, to kind of turn that into a, a one-way conversation where you begin to turn that uh, away from the senses, away from what you can hear and see and feel and really begin to go into a place where you can receive, where you start to listen to the in intuition of, of the body, you to listen to the intuition of the heart. Sometimes we talk about that all. I have a gut feeling, right? But we have to like kind of sit with it for a second. I've never heard anybody say, I have a gut feeling, but that without them, you have to actually ever like taking that big, deep breath. <sighs> yeah, I have a gut feeling, right? They don't usually it'll pop up and then they always like consider it and it's like, yep, I feel good about this or I feel bad about that. And we do this in brainstorming and 
a lot of different uh, uh, techniques and in, into to journaling and channel writing where we just kind of tap into um, the space of our subconscious rather than that of our conscious mind, which our conscious mind, our conscious mind is only about 5% of our, uh, of our mind in general. The rest of it, there's some analytical pieces. There's the, the subconscious and then the autonomic nervous system sits so way at the bottom of that. And we've learned that we can influence the autonomic nervous system through breath, um, and that's part of yoga is to kind of take that breath and to move deeper into the parts of our body that we sometimes shy away from. And that's because our ego gets in the way, right? We don't want to look at ourselves or we're, we don't want to analyze what we see and feel, um, mostly because, well, <laughs> they're scary, they're scary and they feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so Lots of poses that we can do in a physical yoga practice, taking this Eastern mysticism, if we want to, and kind of turning it into our civilized world, right? Taking this mysticism that is not religion, that is just a piece of it, a piece of, um, of yoga called Hatha yoga, and trans- using it as a way to transform ourselves to move away from the script that we've been given in religion, and to begin to develop a personal spiritual practice that is based upon the beliefs that we have, that what we feel, rather than what we're told and what we think. Big differences here, because our thinking mind is within our brain. Usually um, they come from a place called the cheetahs or um, the, the prefrontal cortex and neocortex, it stores these memories and these thoughts and ways that we should react and all of our knowledge. It's all right there. So as we begin to activate areas in the body, as we breathe heavier, if we are finding our f- place in a f- place of fear or in romance or whatever, we go to these storehouses for answers, how we should show up, respond, think. And that's all great, because that's but that's what we've learned. So it means nothing really changes. But when we move into a place of our intuition, into our spirituality, away from our thinking mind and into our subconscious, we begin to be able to deliberately create our life. Not listening to religious dogma that takes us down the same path as others, but we actually physically can manifest our life in a way that serves us personally. I emphasize that for a reason, because this has, does not have to do with groups. Even though there's groups of people doing yoga, there's yoga studios, there's yoga festivals, there are all kinds of places you can go to do yoga as groups, but this is certainly a personal practice. Yoga is the calming of the whirlwind of the mind, us to move away from the thinking mind and into the non-physical, and we just simply happen to use a physical practice to fatigue the body so that we can calm the mind. Very interesting um, concept to talk about. I would love to hear from you guys if you're interested in in talking about this further. Um, I would love to chat with um, the blogger of the the tweets that we read at the beginning of class. Um, I would love to chat about... um, yoga and actually how it, it affects others and how it is not a religion. So 
Yoga is not a religion. It is connected to some aspects, but yoga is contemplation and self-reflection. It is, as Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda said, yoga is the science of self-realization. Thanks for joining today, guys.